When I graduated from college, I was a lot smarter then than I am now. I knew everything. But now I don't know half of what I thought I did back then. But I have learned this. There's a vast difference between knowing truth and experiencing truth. I think a lot of believers are like me. We have a knowledge of the truth that often surpasses our own personal experience. And to be honest with you, I don't want that anymore. That doesn't satisfy. I'm too old to play games and too impatient to continue with something that isn't real. I want to know not just theoretically, not just doctrinally, but personally. As the greatest passion of every day, I want to know Christ. And I don't think that there is any way for us as a church to go deeper in our experience than for us to understand and experience the great book of Ephesians. So let me encourage you to open up your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. If you don't have a Bible, there is a pew Bible in front of you. That is, it's in a rack right in front of you. It's on page 1156, Ephesians, page 1156. If you don't own a Bible, take that one. If you're poor and need some money, take five and sell them on the street corner. But whatever you do, read it and heed it. The book of Ephesians was John Calvin's favorite letter. One theologian said Romans may be the most impressive of all Paul's writings, but Ephesians, perhaps, is the most elegant. It is this wonderful compendium of the essence of Christian theology. And it seems as though Paul is writing and is forced to put Christ in every verse because he can't say enough about him. I want to absorb this message. I want to feel its impact on my soul. I want to dream its dreams and experience the life change that the word of God through the book of Ephesians can have on my life. And I hope a fire will be lit in your heart as well. John McKay was the former president of Princeton Theological Seminary, and he wrote, The book of Ephesians, I owe my life to the book of Ephesians. As a young man of 14 in July of 1903, I experienced through reading Ephesians a transformation of my entire being. I saw a new world, everything was new. I had a new outlook, new experiences, new attitudes toward other people. I loved God, and Jesus Christ became the center of everything. I had been quickened by his grace, and I was really alive. He went on to say that in our time of social disintegration, Ephesians is the most contemporary book in the Bible because it promises 
community in a world of disunity. Reconciliation in the place of annihilation or alienation and peace instead of war. And I would add identity in place of confusion. You see, one of the problems that a lot of Christians have, and maybe you do, is that you don't know who you are. That is one of the questions that human beings have been asking throughout the ages, on every continent. Who am I? What is my purpose for being here? I remember a song that came out of the early 90s written by Michael W. Smith. It became his biggest success. It was a crossover and was number six on the Billboard charts among the hot 100 of even secular songs. My place in this world. It was an emotional expression of a longing to know for sure who he was and what his place was. It was a likable melody with haunting lyrics. And because it was so amazingly accurate, it touched a nerve. Do you remember some of those lyrics? The wind is blowing, the wind is moving, but I am standing still. I'm a life of pages waiting to be filled. A heart that's hopeful, a head that's full of dreams, but this becoming is harder than it seems. Feels like I'm looking for a reason, roaming through the night to find my place in this world. Not a lot to lean on. I need your light to find my place in this world. Then he went on to say, if there are millions down on their knees, among the many, can you still hear me? Hear me asking, where do I belong? Is there a vision that I can call my own? Feels like I'm looking for a reason, roaming through the night to find my place in this world. Well, that's exactly the question that Paul answers in the book of Ephesians, who you are and what's your place. And I think we know it. I'm afraid we don't know it. I think we know it by way of head knowledge, but we're not experiencing the wonderful liberty and peace that comes from loving Christ and serving Christ. And so we have Ephesians. We'll just look at the first couple verses and then maybe some of the major themes throughout the book as we begin our study. But notice with me verse 1 of chapter 1. Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, writing to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now Paul was following the normal conventions of the day. There was a formula back in that day for letter writing the author would put his name first, and then the person he was addressing would come next, and then the body of the letter would follow. Our formula is a little bit different. We put the addressee first, and then the body of the letter, and then we sign it at the end, at least we used to, until email came into place, and now no one has any formula at all. So Paul puts his name first. By the way, he probably had two names from birth. Saul would have been his Jewish name because he was a Jew, named after the famous king of Israel. 
But he was also born a Roman citizen in Tarsus. He was a citizen of two worlds, soon to be three. And so Saul, proud descendant of Benjamin, was also the Apostle Paul, free-born Roman citizen. And it was more advantageous to use the name Paul because he was called to work among the Gentiles. So there is a distinct change when he starts using the name Paul almost exclusively. There's only one physical description of the Apostle Paul that comes to us, and that's from the second century. Not exactly sure it's totally accurate, but it rings true. It's in an apocryphal book called The Acts of Paul and Thecla. And it describes Paul like this. He is a man little of stature, thin-haired upon the head, crooked in the legs, of good state of body, with eyebrows joining together and a nose somewhat hooked. <laughs> Doesn't sound like Mr. Universe, does it? Sounds like a man who had a lot going against him. And yet, when empowered by the Spirit of God, he was a dynamo. What can we learn about the Apostle Paul from this book of Ephesians? Well, notice in chapter 3, verse 1, that he is a prisoner. He is a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Now, that's an interesting way to state it, because technically he is a prisoner of Rome. But he calls himself a prisoner of Christ, which simply means the Apostle Paul believed in God's sovereign providence. The fact that God was ruling in the affairs of men and nothing could happen to him that wasn't first approved by God. It didn't mean that God supported it or was in favor of it as to uh, its truth or justice, but it means that God allowed it. And so Paul says, I'm a prisoner of Jesus. Wouldn't it be great if you and I could face the trials of life and say this is because God has ordained it, even though I don't enjoy it? Chapter 4, verse 1, the same thing. I'm a prisoner of the Lord. And then chapter 6, verse 20, I am an ambassador in chains. So Paul is in prison. There were two imprisonments that Paul endured, most scholars believe. The first was house arrest, and that's this imprisonment. Although chained, he had a lot of freedom. People could come and go. He could write letters. He not only wrote this letter to the Ephesians, which might have had a focus of being sent to all the churches, but all the letters were shared by the other churches. He had friends like Tychicus, who he mentions in chapter 6 and verse 21, who met his needs. And in that day, prisoners were fed and cared for by friends, not by the state. Paul wrote Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians and the little letter of Philemon. All of them intensely personal, except this book to the Ephesian Christians, which seems to be a lot more general in mind. The Apostle Paul, in writing to those in Ephesus, recognized that he was first and foremost writing to the saints. Paul, the apostle to the saints in Ephesus. 
Now, that's a word that often trips us up, saint. If I ask you a question, how many of you are believers in Christ, many hands would go up. If I asked you the question, how many of you are saints in Christ, fewer hands would stay up. And yet is this, it is the same thing. That's why you need the book of Ephesians. You say, but I'm not always very saintly. No one is. But the word used 45 times in the New Testament speaks about a common Christian. And it means set apart. The goal is that we would be set apart to God and live as he lives. But it doesn't mean that we are perfect. Far from it. You see, it speaks more of our position in Christ than it does our practice for Christ. But we want to get the two together so they are consistent. That's the goal. So my friend, you are a saint. It may sound a little strange addressing each other as St. Mark or St. Bob or St. Bernard or whatever it might be. But it is the truth. And we ought to be looking at ourselves in Christ that way. So they are saints in Christ. They are the faithful in Christ. That means they are believers in Christ. The word faithful could be translated in its active sense, trusting in, or in its passive sense, uh, living a faithful life. And I think both ideas are blended here. So they are people who have believed in Christ, and that's how they became saints. In Christ is one of the best descriptions of Christianity throughout the New Testament. And you'll see it mentioned over and over again in Ephesians. We'll come back to it time and time again. But they are in Christ, and they are in Ephesus. Did you know that you have two zip codes? Two passports? You are a citizen of two worlds if you're a Christian. You live in Lansing, or the greater area of this city. And if you are a Christian, you live in Christ. Now my question is this, which is the most dominant location? If someone comes up to me and says, Don, where do you live? If they're a friend, I'll be glad to tell them. If they're not a friend, I'll say none of your business. Too many people are asking for private information these days. I just don't like to give it out. But if you're a friend, I'd be glad to say, well, I live at 517 Bergenstock Drive in Lansing. No, no, no. I mean, where do you live spiritually? Wouldn't it be great to say when someone asks you, hey, where do you live? I live in Christ. Well, that'll throw them a curve. It'll take some explaining to do, but that's what you live for, right? To explain. I'm in Christ predominantly. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. I have a green card. Yeah, I'm a citizen here, but I'm a citizen up there, and I can't wait to go home. But before I do, I want to make sure that I live in a way that pleases him. So, this great city of Ephesus, great because it was a commercial center, the trade routes would intersect in this great city. It was a place, it was a port city, although if you visit there today, the actual shore, the, the water, is about five miles away from the city because over the years, the silt was ju would just build up. 
Because it was such an impressive city, it probably had a population of well over 300,000. There is a theater in the city of Ephesus today that you can visit that would hold 50,000 people. The theater is still there, and it's the one described in Acts chapter 19. It's amazing to read Acts 19 and stand in the very place where it took place. But it was a divided city, divided because of religion. You had emperor worship because it was a Roman colony, had been established 200 years before Paul got there. Secondly, and most notably, was the religion of the fertility cult Diana, the fertility goddess Diana, who was called by the Greeks Artemis. It was said that her image fell from heaven, and when it did, they picked it up and built a temple around it. In fact, in Acts 19, that's exactly what is stated. That's the, the tradition and the story. And the temple to Artemis became one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Amazing. 160 columns around this amazing temple. And people would come from everywhere. The city protected the religion because it also uh, built its economy. The occult was present, black magic, and when some people came to faith in Christ, they burned those works. That's Acts 19 as well. But there was a substantial Jewish colony, people persecuted in the rest of the realm. One of the Caesars sending all Jews out of Rome, and many of them, like Aquila and Priscilla, ended up in the city of Ephesus. And so when Paul came for his very first visit, described in Acts 18, it was a brief visit, he went to the synagogue. When he came back in Acts 19, it was a longer visit. He stayed in Ephesus for almost three years. Started at the synagogue and then rented the hall of Tyrannus and preached. Until everyone in all of Asia, it says in Acts 19, both Jew and Gentile heard the word of the Lord. So Paul had had a great and fruitful ministry in this town. It's not like these people don't know about Christ, but they don't experience Christ as they need to. So what's the occasion for writing? Look at chapter 3, verse 13. Paul says, I ask you, therefore, do not be discouraged because of my sufferings. Understand that these Christians living in this divided city were intimidated, I'm sure. Intimidated by the occult and by the worship to Diana. Even though there might have been a sizable community, they were dwarfed by the population. And they were marginalized in that pluralistic culture that would tolerate only those who are also pluralistic, just like our society today. You see, the society was Ro in Rome, John McKay tells us, was in social disintegration, just like our land today. And the truth of God was being forgotten, and the church was being attacked. Oh, the Christians at Ephesus needed to know that although they were rejected by man, they were accepted by God. Ephesians 1, accepted in the Beloved. They needed to know that though their enemies were powerful, Christ was over all, Ephesians chapter 1. 
Christ is, is the name exalted above every name and above every title, and everything has been put below his feet. Although the world was dark around them and the temptations for the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride of life were very real, they had been raised to newness of life by the grace of God. That's Ephesians chapter 2. And the church was divided. And in chapter 2 and chapter 3, here's the opportunity for the church to come together. They were divided over the Jew-Gentile question. That was the big issue of the day, middle of the first century. You see, when the church started, it was primarily Jewish, and they were slow to take the gospel to the Gentiles, people like most of us. And then when the Gentiles did come into the faith, the church was divided over race. And the gospel would unify them. And that's why Paul wrote this letter, to unify the church. Look at chapter 6, verse 22. So the church is discouraged. He said, I'm sending him, referring to Tychicus, verse 21, his good friend and faithful servant. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that he'll tell you everything, he'll fill in the gaps, so that you might know how we are and that he may encourage you. So discouragement is mentioned in chapter 3 and encouragement is mentioned in chapter 6. And those are the focal points for Paul writing this letter. He's writing a letter to a group of Christians who were discouraged because their leader was in prison. And the society around them was disintegrating and becoming ungodly more and more so. And they were being attacked for standing up for truth. And the church itself was divided over race. Sounds like we need this book. By the way, Paul was writing for them to get their eyes on Christ and not just on the problems because in the end, Paul wanted them to know Christ wins. Right? Christ wins. I have an app on my iPad and iPhone from Major League Baseball. I, I'm a baseball fan, but games take way too long to watch. But this app, rather inexpensive, gives me a summary of every game about 10 to 12 minutes long. And I get to watch the summary of the game, the high points, from a three-and-a-half-hour game to 10 or 12 minutes, every game. Well, I can't root for the Tigers anymore because they're hopeless. <laughs> Too late, they're done. They were done back in April. They just didn't know it, but they're done. But I'm rooting for the Cubs. And, and so uh, I'd love to see the Cubs win. So I, I look at the end of the day at the app, and I checked to see if the Cubs won. If they lost, I don't watch the summary. Too discouraging. I know they're going to lose. But if I see that they won, I'll often watch the summary because I want to see how they did it. So I'll begin to watch it, and they may be down five runs in the second inning. I don't care. We're going to win. I just want to see how it happens. I want to be there when it happens. I want to follow the story when it happens. And my friend, that is our position as Christians. I've read the last book, and we win. I've read the book of Ephesians, and we're placed in Christ in the heavenlies. We win. I want to see how it happens. I want to be involved in the victory. Let's not get too discouraged. 
So I think one of the best ways to look at this book is to think of it in the terms of old watchman knee. The message of the book could be simplified with three words. Sit, walk, stand. Watchman Nee was a Chinese Christian. He was a great leader in the indigenous church movement in China, and then the communist revolution took place. He was persecuted, imprisoned, and spent the last 20 years of his life. But he wrote a commentary on Ephesians called Sit, Walk, Stand. I've never read the book, but I love the title. And where does it come from? Look at chapter 2, verse 6. God has raised us up with Christ and seated us. There it is. Seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And it just gets better if I would keep reading. When is that going to take place? If you're a believer, it already has. See yourself seated at the right hand in Christ, victorious. That's chapter 1. And then he talks a little bit about the effects of this, because this is true, we should be joined together as one church in chapter 2, and discusses it in chapter 3, and has some fantastic prayers in the book of Ephesians. Then look at chapter 4. Here's the second division. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, the NIV translates a Greek word into the English, live a life. But the Greek word is a metaphor that says, walk worthy of your calling. And they've eliminated the metaphor, walk. What does the word walk mean? It means all of the components of the life you live. So it's not a bad translation, except it takes away the metaphor, which ruins my outline, so I'm going to put it back in and use the word walk. Since you are seated with Christ in the heavenlies, now start living like it. Walk a worthy walk. Walk a life that is going to honor Christ, adorn the gospel of God with your behavior. And then it talks about how you can do that in the church, chapter five, 4, in the home, chapter 5, chapter 6, parents and children, slaves and masters, enemies and soldiers. And then when you come to chapter 6, the word stand. Chapter 6, verse 10. Verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Verse 13, with the full armor of God, hold your ground. Stand your ground. And after you've done everything, stand. Verse 14, stand. Do you think he wants us to stand? Too many Christians and churches are capitulating truth to the spirit of the age. We can bend on anything that's not biblical. Lifestyles, cultures, the way you dress, the food you like, the music you listen to, even activities you're involved with, many of those things are amoral, and you can choose what you like, but when it comes to truth revealed from heaven, truth is truth, and we must not give 
So stand. How can you do that? See who you are in Christ? Walk in a manner, manner worthy of Christ? And then stand for the truth of Christ. That's the message. There's another great message, too, just quickly. Did you notice the book starts with grace and peace? Verse 2 of chapter 1. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is God's unmerited favor. It's something we cannot earn or deserve. It's mercy given to us. It's found at least 11 times the word throughout the book, but the theme is throughout. And then peace. Peace is the result of grace. Christ is our peace, chapter 2. He's established peace through the cross. Verse 15, chapter 2. We've come to preach peace, chapter 2, verse 17, to the Jew and to the Gentile. And as the Christian church, we are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, chapter 4. And then when you get to the end of the book, look at how he ends it. This is amazing. He reverses those two things, but ends the same way. Verse 23, peace to the brothers. Verse 24, grace to all. Grace is God putting us in a position we do not deserve, and peace is the result and the way we live in every relationship as a redeemed new society and a wicked, dark that is the wonder of Ephesians. You see, as I said, I've lived long enough to be tired of games and to fool around. This past week, I <clears throat> attended a funeral. One of my mentors, godly man, one of the greatest preachers our era has ever known. In his funeral, his son stood up and said, my dad has written many books, influenced many people, been presidents of multiple seminaries, but he always viewed himself like Paul. I'm the least of all the apostles, the chief of all sinners. And then he alluded to something that happened in the life of John Newton. It was a quote that I heard my mentor say at least twice, maybe even three times. It was indeed the major theme of his life. Coming out of the life of John Newton. John Newton was a slave trader, captain of a ship that got men and women from Africa and put them into slavery. But then he became a Christian and he wrote, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch. He knew he was a wretch. Some of us are a little too cleaned up and respectable to call ourselves such. But we are outside of Christ. It saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. Now I'm found. So he became a pastor and wrote all kinds of hymns. And on his deathbed, he was laying there right after he helped William Wilberforce abolished slavery in England on his deathbed and heard that they had finally voted it out. Some friends heard him say things like this, I'm packed and sealed and waiting for the post. 
meaning I'm like a letter that's already written, sealed up, stamped, and I'm just waiting to be mailed. To another friend, he said, I'm like a person going on a journey in a stagecoach who expects, expects its arrival every hour and is frequently looking for it out the window. But to his good friend, William J., when he had lost strength and could barely speak above a whisper, William J. heard him say this, John Newton, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. I am a great sinner, and Jesus is a great Savior. That's the book of Ephesians. Let's pray. And now, Father, we pray as you dismiss us today that we might go forth with your blessing upon us. Help us not to know in theory alone the truth of Scripture, but by personal experience. In your name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. You are dismissed.